my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. We saw in 2008 that the global financial markets were really tied together, right, during the great financial Mm. crash. And it seems like we're only tied together even more now. Um, so it seems like it's, it's even worse now. And, and, you know, with all the trouble going on in the world, I mean, obviously, yes, looking at the U S right. Being the reserve currency of the world, but I mean, looking at what's happened in Japan with the BOJ and in in Europe, um, Mm. I mean, if, if, if things deteriorate to a point where the EU starts to break apart or the ECB starts to default, I mean, is the fed going to step in and put that on their back? So it's like you kind of yeah. have to like understand what's going on there to understand what might happen to the U.S. a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, and just look at the the all the currency pairs versus the U.S. dollar. Everything's 
everything's struggling. Um, you know, the euro's down what twenty percent or something in that region yeah. the last the last year. Um, just they've been so slow to jump on the you know on the gun with the Fed rate rises. The EU's and I think a lot of countries are just behind, and so they're just seeing that collapse. And then you've got the extra supply side inflation factor on top. Um, yeah, lots of interesting dynamics putting stresses on systems. Yeah. Yeah, I did a video uh, not too long ago talking about, you know, potential breakup of the EU and just how, you know, the j just like all central banks are stuck in this proverbial rock in a hard place um, where inflation's raging in Europe, the inflation's worse than the US even, uh, inflation's raging on. Um, so it makes it very difficult for them to, you know, continue to ease into that type of environment. But at the same time, because it's a debt-based monetary system, a Ponzi mm -hmm. system, if they don't continue to ease and the whole thing starts to fall apart and how <clears throat> Europe specifically, right, you have Germany kind of being this economic engine of Europe that's been mm -hmm. this manufacturing hub, but then you have the pigs nations down south, right? Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, specifically Greece, Italy. I mean, they're horrible. Uh, Greece mm -hmm. has, has had been bailed out multiple times. Um, and so if they continue to raise rates, how do those countries continue to get bailed out and roll over their... Yeah. I suspect, again, coming back to the US, that we're we're approaching the late stages of at least the aggressive part of the rate rises. I think we're going to see those rate rises diminish in size and probably pause into either later part of this year or early next year. Okay. Uh, just because we're seeing um, inflation signs of topping the last few months, it's, you know, obviously this month individually was not what people expected. But if you look at the trend the last few months, it has come down quite a bit. And if that continues the next couple of months, I don't see why, you know, the Fed could probably, you know, quite comfortably say, you know, we've got things under control for now and let's just kind of keep things at a consistent relative level or maybe raise but less aggressively and just see if this trend continues. Um, that, that's kind of my feeling. I think that will put a bit of a pressure release on systems Next let's let's, let's talk about that for a minute. So inflation trending uh, to, to maybe maybe down or topping out. Um, I saw you, I think, put out a tweet just this morning saying this is the chart to look at or something like that, right? Uh, the most bullish mm. chart in the world, inflation top. <laughs> so, so inflation's trending down. There was this video of uh, President Biden that just kind of was maybe going a little bit viral. Um, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes and they were, they were kind of hammering him and they said, um, yes, uh, but inflation's still going; it's still moving up. And Biden said, "Well, it went up an inch." Yeah, <laughs> is it? I, yeah, I, I, what, what's it? What's an inch? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. I saw that as well. And you know, as someone in his position, you can't. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it present it that way in the, in the positive scenario that he tried to do, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, we do have three or four, depending if you PPI data points now monthly on kind of reduced rates. It, it's still early. I think inflation is something that's probably, you know, historically it's been a problem when it arises for multiple years. So it may be that it's topped, so to speak, for now and that um, we kind of level off a bit and come down maybe even to the low single digits next year. But it could then, you know, raise its head in a year or two, if depending on sort of macro situations. But I think at least for this portion of the uh, the you know the battle, so to speak, with inflation, I think we are approaching the point where a stance softening, whether that be you know lower rate rises or um, or just pausing for a few months, is is close. And I think you just look at the massive amount of negative sentiment we have in markets at the moment. You know, put call ratio um, 
is it eight or something ridiculous, three times worse than uh, 2008. There's a lot of negative sentiment and fear in the markets everywhere. And I think if, as soon as you have an event like that with a pause or a just reduction in rate in the, in the, in the level of rate rise, we're going to see a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a balance, I would say, at least in the near term. Well, risk um, assets. So, so inflation is trending down. So it, it, it went from 9.1 to 8.5 to 8.3, right? So it's trending down. But if you, if you dig into the data, um, if you look at the, if you look at the data, I mean, the CPI data, what the government in the U S is going after from the BLS, it shows, um, that, uh, energy is the only thing that went down, right? Everything else continued to go up. And energy came down and specifically, well, one, it had gone up. I mean, depending if you're looking at gasoline or oil had gone up, you know, as much as 100, 150%. And now it pulled back 20%. So it's mm. still up 90%. So, I mean, mm. when anything shoots up that high, it's, it's due for a little yeah. bit back. And then you have uh, unprecedented releasing of the SPR reserves, the oil reserves. So supply and demand, you dump all this extra supply on the market, you bring mm. the price down 20%, you get a little bit of relief, but everything else... Uh, core still went up big time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Energy is a, a huge part of it, obviously, at the moment. Um, and that is obviously one of the driving factors of a lot of the change. But I do think also that the tightening regime that we're in, where you've got, you know, call it three to 5% interest rates over the next sort of 12 months, it's going to put a lot of pressure on, on just investments in generally, whether that be individual investors in the market, but also businesses looking to start new projects or, or take new actions, uh, any kind of speculation, any adoption risk, because you have that cash alternative, which gives you a return. So that's all going to drive down. That stuff takes many, many months to hit, hit markets and subsequently hit consumer demand and um, just broader metrics of inflation that you're talking about. So, you know, we're seeing new housing starts in the US, for example, they've really come back over the last six, six months, uh, mm. hasn't quite hit housing prices yet, but there's definitely a significant topping structure on new housings. Um, so things like that, I think, are, are early signs of how people are thinking about spending money, how, you know, if people are not willing to, you know, start digging up ground because they're worried about the situation, they're starting to tighten the belt a bit, and that's going to start to feed out. I believe, into a lot of different areas of the economy. So I think we will see it, in a feed, it feed into other areas, not just energy, but other areas of inflation. And it, it's, you know, it's a 12-month, 24-month process at least uh, to really to see the net impacts of just where the rates are today, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading something last week and it was saying it typically takes at least nine months to see the effects mm. of the rate increase get its way through the market. Exactly. Um, you know, and then, you know, what the Fed specifically seems to be doing is trying to destroy the demand, right? And so uh, whether that's crushing the real estate market to the point you're making or crushing the stock market, uh, <clears throat> but they also need to really affect the employment market, right? The labor yes. market. Yes. Uh, they're, they're the enemy of the people. <laughs> Your wage yes. going up is their problem. <laughs> yes. That, uh, that dual mandate, the kind of impossible task they have. <laughs> In some respects, yeah, I think that that is the biggest metric that they they'd be looking at right now is employment. Um, you know, there's a number of I, I did a tweet today. So there's about four kind of metrics at a high level or four data points that they really monitor for a recession, and and that would be the key kind of help them pace how far they can push the pedal, so to speak, with tightening. 
but the biggest one's definitely employment. Uh, it, it, it's also, you know, you could cynically say it's voters, right, and how it impacts political power structures as well. So it's at rec- record lows, lowest it's been in about 50 years. You're talking about the, uh, uh, un- the unemployment Unemployment rate, exactly. That said, in the last one to two months, it's started to tick up a bit. Uh, nothing, arguably nothing concerning yet, <laughs> arguably noise, but... If you have that trend of it continuing to go up the next couple of months, it would look like a bottoming structure in unemployment rates. And typically when you have a bottoming structure, you do end up having a recession follow it. Um, it's just kind of that reflexivity, basically everything compounded in the, the wrong way. And, and the unemployment rates, I would say, are kind of somewhat lagging uh, towards metrics like new housing starts, for example. But also all of this data is a bit lagging. It's, it's monthly uh, and even that, the way it's aggregated can be a bit late. So, yeah, we, we, do, we do need some more time to confirm that. But I think that is another reason. Uh, if, you know, if that does continue its current trend of going up a bit later into the year, that's just another data point for the Fed to say, okay, now is probably a reasonable time to just see what happens if we hold rates where they are or just, you know, increase them by point, you know, 25 or 50 base points instead of 75, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. My dad works in B2B marketing. But I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. When it, when you look at the um, unemployment data, uh, there's the data, the number that the government releases, obviously, uh, which to your point is uh, very low. Um, mm. And then there seems to be like the real data that goes into making that number. Um, yeah. So, for example, um, <clears throat> they come up with this data by doing surveys, right? And then they have like an adjust an adjuster on top of that. So um, they use something like I covered this in a video and basically um, they use this uh, birth death factor to see how many new businesses were created or how many mm-hmm. died and then how many jobs. And then they estimate how many jobs that would create. And they do that based off of the previous year's data. So they took this anomaly year where we had this massive restart because the whole world was forced to shut down. In 2021, the world was opened back up. So we had all these business start back up, all these jobs. They took that data and then extrapolated it. So they added 309,000 jobs um, to the data that they had. So it doesn't take a a data scientist to figure out that that was an anomaly year. Yes. (laughs) We're grabbing an adjustment of 300,000 jobs and adding that. Um, That's not normal. So that data is obviously false. Do you think they look at that or they're just looking at the data, the number? (laughs) Yeah. Or or is it, is it about selling it to the public? Oh, I think this, the latter is definitely a big part of it. Um, I'm sure that, you know, I wouldn't, I'd just be speculating if I guess what they look at. I'm sure they look at a, a lot of different data points. That said, they don't have the best track record of, of identifying this stuff in advance. Even, you know, they were quite late to raising rates last year, for example. So they can be a bit behind the curve. Um, I'm sure they've got their core metrics, which guide, may call it 60, 70% of the decision making. And then you've got all this other data they probably look at as well. But um, yeah. It, the the COVID situation just threw a big spike up and down in a lot of metrics. So it, it would be interesting to know how they allow for that. Do they smooth it out somehow? Do they do they just ignore it? Do they or do they shift the data and focus on other areas? Because yeah. you're right, that would that will have a big impact, and we won't know <laughs> for for years really how how much of an impact that could have. Yeah. And then, well, just because when you're trying to, you know, be forward looking, um, you're trying to figure out like where these things are going. And so it's like, you can kind of like lie about the data for so long, but eventually like the reality is going to set in. And so then not only that, but then we have the increase in jobs. Most, a lot of them were part-time, less than 40 hours at lower rates. So uh, sure we added jobs, but we added very low quality jobs, low paying jobs, Mm -hmm. low hour jobs. 
Um, so when you dig into the data, like, well, the number, the number seems okay. The reality is uh, kind of like the CPI. CPI came down, but when you dig into it, yeah, it actually doesn't look that good. <clears throat> yeah, I, do, I don't pretend to 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 argue that the sort of macro economy as a whole is seeing yeah. a lot of a lot of trouble at the moment. Just the, the the classic yield curves, right? They're so negatively inverted right now, which suggests that the economy is in medium to long term trouble, and they've preceded recessions by roughly twelve months. Every single time, 100% hit rate over the last 70 years. So they're negatively inverted right now, which suggests that we should statistically have a recession somewhere in the next 12 to 24 months uh, on average. Um, so when I say that rates uh, will, will potentially pause and we may have a, a bit of a, a near-term recovery in equities markets, that could last, and I don't want to put a time number, but it could last anywhere from months to a year or potentially even a bit more. And then obviously it will depend on conditions at the time. But as a whole, all of these kind of indicators are pointing towards a turn in at least the unemployment metrics, right? Which, as you say, is going gonna, is gonna to hit jobs at some point if yeah. we remain in this tightening phase. Let's talk about the other four. So, so uh, you said uh, you know, the, the four signs you're looking at. So one is the unemployment data. So it is at a very low number. Um, whether we can believe the data or not, that's okay. Um, at least yes. that's the data shows maybe the consumers are buying it. The sec- uh, then you had uh, consumer spending and how strong yeah. that is. Yeah, exactly. That was still quite strong. And I think you can see this big spike in that chart from around the corona period, which no doubt is on the back of a lot of economic stimulus uh, and those, those checks that were coming out. And it is plunging right now, but it is still at least on the, the, the data, you know, monthly level, which again is somewhat lagging. And I think the most recent data point is a month or two old anyway, as it is on that chart. It's still about 50% above the 20 year average. Um, but I think that's also a reflection on, on jobs, right? So once you see them, the, the unemployment rate starts to tick up, it's obviously going to impact uh, the consumer spending. So all these metrics are intertwined. Um, but and, and and unemployment in my mind is probably the most important. But yeah, we are seeing relatively le- healthy levels of consumer spending. I, I shared this video the other day. So this is like uh, U.S. personal savings uh, plunging down the blue mm. line here, and then Federal Reserve consumer credit outstanding as increase. Yeah. <laughs> we have like massive <laughs> amounts of debt increasing while yes. consumer savings going down. So the spending is happening, but where is the spending happening from? <laughs> exactly. If, if you dive into the detail, like a chart like this, it doesn't paint a pretty picture. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, um, the data at surface level seems to kind of be okay. Right. Uh, but when you, dig in, <laughs> when you dig into the data yeah. a little bit, all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute. Um, but, but even a chart like that is another reason why at some point, unless the Fed has lost its mind, it cannot keep raising as aggressively as it is because it's just going to break not only businesses, but individuals and families yeah. which have high debt burdens. Like it, <laughs> they could continue until things break. But I think it's some, you know, at a logical point, especially with inflation starting to come back a bit, they're going to start to change that. Yeah, this this chart was uh, pulled a month ago. I don't have the updated chart, but this is from 8.4, you can see right here. Uh, but consumer credit um, skyrocketing right here, mm. while personal savings continues to go down. So sort of like the last chart we saw, but this is a consumer credit. 
yeah. versus personal savings. And so, yeah, spending is still happening, but um, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. if, unless the Federal Reserve completely has their head in the sand, um, they, they got to see this data, right? I mean, yes. Uh, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm I'm certainly I don't have the whatever thousand PhDs working for me like they do. I mean, if I can see the data, <laughs> they got to see the data. Exactly. Then we have the next your next indicator was the manufacturing, the PMI mm. holding. So mm. that's uh what what's the PMI and how is it holding? Yeah, it's a survey of manufacturing. It, it's it's above 50 at the moment. It is probably one of the eight less attractive looking of the metrics has definitely come back a lot in the last six to 12 months. Um, if you look at the 50 line on that, on that metric, when it crosses under that, it's often again aligned with a period before a recession occurs. Uh, I don't have the, the months or the duration on top of mind, but it, it, it has occurred frequently before recession. So it's going the wrong direction. And that's, you know, if that crosses under 50, again, another reason. <laughs> later in the year early next year to to start to you know reduce rates a bit or, or sorry reduce the 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 frequency or the depth of, of rate rises so yeah it's not it's not trending well but it's still a positive enough level to to not trigger immediate action yeah and then the fourth one was uh the the, the bad one the worst one out of all <laughs> right was the real in yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I haven't dived into the components of that at a great level. That said, you can see it quite clearly in a chart. It, uh, it, the real income is very negative, um, far worse than 2008. And obviously, a lot of that is going to be inflation related. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to that uh, labor market report that I was kind of referencing before. So, um, we saw average hourly earnings year over year go up 5% when we have 8 or 9% inflation. So inflation mm. wages are not going up with the, with the rate. And, and back to the point that we made earlier, the Fed doesn't want your wages going up. That's a problem yeah. for them. Yes. yes. Man, if, if, if more people would just wake up to that fact, like the Fed actively wants you making less money. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because it's inflationary. Yeah. inflationary. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, right? I mean, if, if I have to pay somebody more money to work, then I have to raise my prices. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So um, it seems like, and I think you would agree that that the macro picture, and you said earlier that you're kind of studying more about the US side, but the macro picture is driving the bus here. So mm. I want to kind of dive into the the risk assets. And obviously, risk assets have just been completely obliterated. Um, mm. November of last year, when the Fed first announced they were going to <laughs> start doing yeah. it, before they even did, we saw the S and P didn't start moving until January. Um, but it, when when you look at risk assets and can they catch a bid? Are we at the bottom? Are they cheap mm. or expensive? All these things. Um, do you think the macro picture is the one driving the bus, and that's really the bigger question overall? Or where are you looking? Yeah, it's definitely a huge factor at the moment. Um, I think it well, obviously my main focus is is Bitcoin and crypto. When I look at Bitcoin exclusively and, and different valuation metrics, I look at there, uh, many different on-chain metrics, everything is kind of screaming deep value, uh, once in a four-year kind of opportunity readings on, on multiple metrics. Um, but we still have this tight correlation to macro markets, which is a big factor. I, I do think, as I mentioned, I think that 
a lot of the the direction and trends that uh, risk assets take in general over the long term, if you just look at big timeframes, is driven by the change in rates of change of Fed and monetary policy. So we in November last year, as you mentioned, they basically announced we're going to have a rate of change in the in the in how rates are increased, and that triggered this kind of collapse. And I think we're about to see the next kind of transition later this year, early next year, where the rate of change of rates will reduce or go to or go to zero. So the rates will just go, you know, pause at the current level, at least for some time. And then that will cause a, a kind of a trend shift in risk assets. Um, again, may not be long-term, but it, I think it will happen. And, and it could be that we're in a recession at that point, or maybe it's a bit later or earlier, but people have to remember that historically, once a recession is announced, it's it has been a pretty good buy signal in risk asset markets. So while things may look awful, while unemployment may be rising, it doesn't make, you know, the, the equities markets are always looking forward. They're always discounting back six, 12 months from the future. So even if situations are quite ugly, it's it's going to be the, the rate changes that drive things. Um, so I think that's on the horizon. I think this Wednesday, so we're on you know, Monday today. So on, on Wednesday, we've got the the, the rates uh, being announced. It's about 80% priced in that we're going to have a 75 base point rate rise, 20% 100. I don't think 100 is even on the cards, just given we've got inflation coming back and, and where all these other data points are at that we're talking about, all these red flags. So I think once that's that 20% is eliminated of the extremity and rate rises, you'll see a small sort of, rally in markets, depending, of course, on the narrative that um, Jerome Powell presents. But I think that's the base case. How, that how, uh, how dovish or hawkish he, he is. <laughs> exactly. Like if he if they raise by 75, but then he just drops the hammer that, that, I don't know, extremely negative and pessimistic, then I don't think we're going to get much reaction. But I, I think that um, he probably will keep the similar narrative to last time, but it'll be 75. That cuts out the risk of 100. We get a small rally. And then the next months, um, if situations continue as is if inflation continues to top we'll get some more recovery there in risk assets i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico now i'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me monday to friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means follow the global story from the bbc wherever you listen to podcasts this podcast is sponsored by cloud optimizer as a business owner or it manager are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why it's time for cloud optimizer as you migrate your business to the cloud what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy but cloud optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. 
Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. So... That's kind of my base case. And then when I think about that in line with where the deep value I see is in, in Bitcoin and crypto, I think that we've got a great opportunity at the moment that those opportunities can last a while. Prices can obviously always go lower. Um, and it, but generally speaking, I feel like it's, a, it's basically a buy side opportunity in the next six to 12 months if you're allocating to an asset class like crypto, for example. And crypto is like, the beta or extra beta risk on on equities so we have even seen the last uh sort of few weeks i just sort of i was looking at a chart today actually that it's starting you know there's obviously that tight correlation with equities but we're starting to see bitcoin moving first in terms of risk so it's being priced as a pure risk asset even more so than than um than equities i don't expect that to last long term but it, we should see you know impacts at least near term uh, sooner in the crypto space. So um, we we're talking about the risk assets really being affected by this. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've made some statements. I've seen you put out some tweets as well, which is like, you know, Bitcoin's trading like a risk on asset, but mm. it's not a risk on asset. Exactly. So it's trading like that, but it's not. Mm. Uh, we're always looking for the mismatch of perception and reality. Yeah, I saw um, an article came out from uh, the guys over at Bloomberg Intelligence, and they said that they thought um, they could see Bitcoin um, moving to uh, trade more of a risk off asset by Q4 of 2022 yeah. and maybe move more towards like a bond or a gold kind of a format. Uh, mm. What do you see as far as that mismatch? I mean, is it <clears throat> is it is it being traded like that, but it's not? I mean, what's that perception there? And yeah, that, when it that, makes that, it leap out. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think there is a big misalignment or a big perception gap in what Bitcoin, specifically Bitcoin, is. Um, you know, it, it's more or less designed for exactly this macroeconomic issues that we're facing right now. It it it's hard coded for hundred years. We know what the inflation rate is going to be. We know it's lower than gold and every other alternative uh, until you know we could talk about Ethereum, but and. Generally speaking, it's super low, rock solid inflation policy, inflation hedge, uh, a preserver of value, but it's been traded the exact opposite. 
even though we have 10 years of data, which shows that it has the highest risk adjusted returns of, of all asset classes, it's being treated as just pure speculation by, I, and my belief is it's just primarily the institutions that have entered the market in the last 18, 24 months or so. And their allocations are probably, you know, 1%, 2% or whatever it may be, but relatively small compared to their overall portfolio. And they, and people in general don't fully understand what Bitcoin is yet. People are still working out how to value it. There's new metrics coming out all the time. There's always disagreements with what's better or worse in doing that. And because of that, it just gets lumped into the speculation bin. And if there's any risk in overall markets, that's the first thing to go is where I see it at the moment. That's why we see Bitcoin trading like basically <laughs> junk in, in an environment it was perfectly built for. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned that report for Q4 and that, that it could change and that, um, you know, a bit more like gold. And I, and I do think that will happen. I don't know if it's Q4 because I haven't seen the evidence of it happen yet. It could be a long time. So I can't put a time on it, but I do think there'll be a drastic shift, uh, uh, basically an inversion of that, that, def that how it's perceived and how it trades and that correlation. It's also like, if you look at the 10 years of Bitcoin, we, the correlation with Bitcoin to all other or equities marks, for example, is it fluctuates around zero pretty much that whole time, except for the last 12 to 18 months, which again, aligns with that window of when institutions have started to adopt uh, or at least get in, involved with Bitcoin. So I think it's like a learning phase. Um, perhaps it will require uh, a shift in, in macro markets. Perhaps it requires just time to resolve, but I think it does resolve at some point. I want to dig more into that. And I have a couple uh, tweets that you had put out that I want to discuss. Um, but I know that you know your your fund is uh, is is trading Bitcoin. You're trying to uh, create alpha, uh, better returns than, than Bitcoin itself. Buy and hold strategy. Um, so the big question is: I saw you were in a space is uh, not too long ago, and I I didn't get to listen to it, but I saw um, uh, the I think I think the title was uh, Bitcoin to twelve thousand or thirty thousand. Which happens first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So as somebody who's trading Bitcoin and trying to generate alpha on top of Bitcoin, uh, what do you think comes first, 12,000 or 30,000? <laughs> yeah. And does, and, um, and does it matter? Yeah. For, yeah. So I can answer that question with, a, with my personal opinion, um, but it doesn't really reflect how we manage our capital. Um, so that's one thing. We, we deploy kind of a variety of quantitative strategies uh, across different assets in the crypto space. The overall goal is to outperform Bitcoin long-term. But yeah, from a personal opinion, when I look at these, these deep value ratings, I'm seeing when I just look at the technicals of where the chart is, uh, I would say, you know, my and and given now where I also where I think macro is in, in leading into the end of the year, early next year, I think that the risk reward is definitely skewed to the upside. Um, I, 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 I don't see why we couldn't necessarily take out the lows of the of price. So in the 17s, for example. But if I had to, you know, put put my money on it, which I wouldn't make a bet like this, but if I did, I would I would say that the mid to high twenties comes before the you know the low teens, for example, in price. But um, yeah, again, that's not how we <laughs> we manage a capital. But I just see so much, as I've mentioned, so much negative sentiment, so much fear in the market. Everything's priced for the downside. Um, I see that in the next six to nine months, call it, we have a, a regime change in macro. And then I see one in four year value opportunities in Bitcoin. And for me, that just says that 
yeah, the, the risk reward is 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 drastically um, to the upside, and also this asset class is still so misunderstood. So you add that on top. At some point, we don't know when, but once that that changes, and I'm sure it will in the coming years, that that will again add another factor of potential appreciation. Yeah, I think um, the longer term picture seems easier to 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 de decipher. The short term picture is hard. It's like. Mm. A lot of people, and and even the market you were kind of referring to earlier about the the shorts and the longs and whatnot in the options market, I think. But um, overall sentiment seems to think the market, like the whole world's going to end, and you know <clears> the market <throat> could easily drop fifty percent from here, which they could. Exactly. Um, you know, you got plenty of people calling for that. Um, you know, some of them have been calling it for a decade, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, we got the Jeremy Granthams or whatever saying, uh, you know, we're at a we're at a textbook fifty percent retracement. Uh, we're about to have another big plunge. Of course, we got Harry Dent who's been calling it for a decade, and we have those mm -hmm. people. If if we saw the markets plunge another fifty percent from here, then I guess the twelve thousand dollar Bitcoin comes into play. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe we don't. Maybe we don't see that, and I think there's there's definitely a camp for that argument as well. If you zoom out and look at like a weekly chart of the Nasdaq and the S and P 500, they're holding their trend line like perfectly. Um, mm. Exactly. So yeah. Is, is that kind of how you see it? Back to kind of the I guess the point we made earlier, right? Like the macro is driving the bus. So like if if the if the markets plunge fifty percent from here, then probably that twelve thousand comes into play. And so I guess you'd have to ask yourself: Do you think the markets plunge fifty percent from here, or do you think they kind of um, the rate the yeah. rate pauses uh, the rates pause? And maybe we kind of hold this market structure. Yeah. So I, I basically agree with what you're saying. Um, and you know, if it also depends on timing. If markets, if we, we finish this this meeting and, and markets drop 50%, then right. probably we're gonna look at Bitcoin yeah. chart and be a bloodbath. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's not my base case. Uh definitely wouldn't be surprised to see some downside volatility. Um, but I do think that, as I mentioned, you know, if you give it a few months. And, uh, and I think that the, the trend will be, you know, we might have this consolidation phase where we're in right now, which we have had for three months, really. But I think that, that the, yeah, as I mentioned, the risk reward is more or less to the upside. It, it, it also depends on your time horizon as an investor. If you're, if you're trading this on a day-to-day -day level, then, you know, you, you, could, <laughs> you could argue either way very, very easily. But if you're also, if you're talking about years, then again, for me, it all stacks up to the upside. Let's talk about um, some of your uh, metrics that you look at. So I know you're um, looking at this, these hash ribbons and uh, on-chain metrics is, is some of the tools that you use. Um, the hash ribbons, that's regarding the miners and what the miners are doing? Yeah, exactly. So the, the hash ribbons is you know, simply described, um, basically looking at the trends in, in, in hash rate and hash rate is a measure of, of basically how much mining energy is committed to the network, how, how much security it has. Um, so Hashrooms itself is just looking for major capitulations in hash rate. And that usually happens when you've had some kind of hit to price um, or could be even to supply side, you may have rising energy prices like we have <clears throat> globally, which, which cause the uh, profit margins of, of Bitcoin miners to get squeezed. And at some point, the inefficient miners kind of stop mining or they give up or they sell their their bitcoin stack to cover their costs and that creates extra sell side pressure price kind of takes another leg down at some point that basis you're left with the efficient the, the most efficient miners and then you get a you start to get a recovery and when you get that recovery along with kind of price recovery it's been a good buy signal in the past so we had that occur 
in, um, I think it's about three or four weeks ago now, uh, Hash Ribbon Buy, um, which is a strong multi-month call it buy signal. Um, this one also happens to be in the later part of the, the Bitcoin halving cycle. And those ones historically have been the best performant. That said, um, comparing miners today to four years ago, they're relatively a small element of the network simply because we have so many other big players, so many big institutions, investors, uh, companies like MicroStrategy, et cetera, that add, you know, they control quite a bit of supply too. So we should expect that into the future, the miners may have less impact in overall price direction than they did in the past. I still think the signal is valid. It's still impacting our portfolio to the, to the positive side. Um, but it's not the complete, it's not the only thing we look at. Uh, Bitcoin investing in general is, is a lot more sophisticated today. I think you need to consider a lot more data points. Also, obviously, macros have discussed uh, most of today. So it's one element. It's If I had to choose one metric and only only invest based on that metric, it would still be that one today. Um, but one. Exactly. If, if I could only choose one thing uh, to buy, it would be it would be based on that. But um, yeah, it it would be it wouldn't be wise to base your decisions purely based on that one. Yeah, never. Story. There's never one one indicator that's uh, conclusive. Exactly. Never. Yeah. You need as many indicators as you possibly can find. From BBC Radio Four, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment. Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Um, when it comes to the, the hash ribbons, I, I understand what you're saying. So you have now these big institutions who are holding considerable amounts of Bitcoin, hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins at a time, and uh, you know potentially never putting them back into the market, right? And so markets, you know, price action moves on supply and demand. So if you have these, you know, big institutions, uh, the micro strategies buying the Bitcoin, locking it away in cold storage, and never goes back up, then that affects the supply demand metric. The miners, although to your point you're making, I, I can see that, right? Which is um, they're not the big institutions anymore. Now we have the big publicly traded institutions, et cetera. Um, however, the miners are the ones producing it, right? Mm. So, so if, if they're going to sell everything they produce every day or every month or mm. quarter, then we still have that that pressure that's constantly on the price action. Whereas if they decide to hold, then that takes all that new supply off the market or, or a considerable piece. So um to your point, I mean, I see what you're saying. I, I think I, I haven't studied the hash ribbons as, as in depth as you have, I'm sure. But um, just thinking through it just quickly, it seems like um, what that new supply does every day, week, month, or quarter probably has a lot to do with that price action. So I, we did see mm -hmm. we did see the miners capitulate, which actually I had thought maybe was a sign of the bottom, right? So we had the cascading effect from Terra Luna to Celsius and Voyager and all that, boom, 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 boom. And then the miners were forced to capitulate and it looked like they had sold everything plus some of their, you know, at least what we saw from the publicly traded ones. Um, and so now it does, does the hash ribbon, is that what that picks up as well? The minor capitulation or yeah. does it pick up their machines coming online and offline? Both, both. They're, they're all kind of incorporating the hash rate. And um, I, I agree with everything you just said that it, it still has a, a big impact. It's still, they still are a big influencer, I would say on, on price and network, of course. I, I kind of think if you look at a, you know, the inflation curve of Bitcoin is kind of a, a logarithmic curve to zero, more or less, over 100 years. And their impact kind of, or their relative impact in the network follows that, that chart. And then that, and that, that uh, inflation rate for Bitcoin obviously halves every, every four years. So, you know, in, in 2024, so in two years from now, they're going to have half as much in, in new supply coming in. So thing, the relative impact they have in the network from a supply side will reduce with time. So I still think it's very relevant, just a bit less than two years ago, but a lot more than it will be in two years' time. This, the interesting thing, though, is that a lot of these things, a capitulation, occur at the same time. So you just mentioned, you know, I think 3SC and all these bankruptcies and Celsius and other lending platforms just blowing up in the last couple of months. And it was exactly in that window that the miners were also going through the capitulation. So... When, when they're struggling, it tends to be, obviously, that other large institutions are struggling from, from similar kind of price stress. All right. Uh, what about the on-chain data? Do you, do you think the hash, I mean, I, I guess the hash ribbons are on-chain data as well. Um, and I guess you've already said that that's like probably your number one metric that you're looking at. Um, are there other uh, on-chain data metrics that you, that you, you know, yeah. think are, are pretty important? Definitely. Uh, we run uh, an in one strategy for on our portfolio which only looks at on-chain and some macro market metrics so it looks at over 35 of them 
to to basically go long or into cash with that portfolio every day and it just reweights them using machine learning algorithm to find which have been most um, you know predictive of price essentially so there's definitely value in it um, also just published a very short article uh, a couple of days ago on slrv ribbons which is super basic metric on um, the slrv ratio which is essentially the ratio of short-term holders to long-term holders and and the relative activity in the network so <clears throat> when you have um these big bubbles in bitcoin you know for example going up to 20k in 2017 up to 60k more recently you have a lot of active short-term holders they turn over their coins they're holding it you know for days uh, short periods of time and then when prices collapse you often see the short-term traders and speculators kind of disappear from the market and you're left with the long-term holders or those that hold for you know six months or more and that's kind of what forms the base so in in markets when those are at that ratio between short and long term it kind of just oscillates right um and we're at that bottom point kind of now where you have a lot of long-term holder activity almost no short-term holder activity and it tends to the, the new cycle or the new you know uh, kind of sustainable price recovery tends to occur when you do start to get that kind of new growth, that new grassroots movement from short-term holders entering the market again, regaining interest, because that is also obviously associated with uh, new wallets being created on the network. So the just general network adoption of Bitcoin. Um, so the trend is still to the downside on that metric, um, which <clears throat> again, that can be lagging. It's, it's not going to time perfect tops and bottoms. Um, but it does give good times to risk on and risk off. Um, and generally speaking, where the metric is at in terms of level, it's below uh, 0.04, which is historically, again, lines up with the bottom of most uh, Bitcoin bear cycles. So that's just one example of a metric. Um, the article I wrote on it just created a very basic strategy to long and go to cash using that metric, and it outperforms Bitcoin by three times in the last five years, and it has 30% less downdraw. So it's just one example. It's not meant to be an isolated trading strategy, but it just shows that there is value in, in on-chain. And yeah, we definitely look at it quite closely in our, in our approach. So to, uh, to kind of summarize all of this, the macro picture is the one driving the bus. So keep an eye on that. Um, if we look at uh, the indicators, hash ribbons, as well as like on-chain data, um, I'll put out a couple of videos on it as well. Um, you know, finding Bitcoin's fair market value, looking at the, uh, you know, age of coins moving, um, things like that. It looks like anything under 20,000 is USD is a pretty generational buying opportunity. Uh, Bitcoin's valuation is historically cheap. Um, we don't know when bottoms come until we're looking backwards on them. So we just typically try to buy when it's cheap and sell when it's expensive, or if you're a trader, or add to your portfolio by buying when things are cheap. And we can see it's historically cheap. Um, doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. and doesn't mean it can't stay cheap for a long time, right? Um, exactly. That kind of the overall picture that you see? Yeah, that's, that's perfectly summarized. I think regardless of when you enter the market in crypto, you have to come in with a long-term mindset of, at least try and what if, if you're just going to buy and hold at least have that four year that full cycle in mind in this is my personal opinion anyway not a, a four year or a, a full year yeah four years is the, the bitcoin halving cycle and i think that is a good way to capture um you know good opportunities i would say um 
and and expect sizable downdraws. Uh, you know, fifty percent plus shouldn't be unexpected. Even if you enter now, I don't think you're going to see that kind of level of downdraws we've, we've already talked about. But you should be prepared for it, and and not that shouldn't be your opportunity to exit. I suppose at a at a loss, but um, yeah, of course, it, it really depends on anyone's individual investment objective. But yeah, I I do see huge value on the Bitcoin side, the on-chain side, cycle timing. We're also between years two and three, which has always been the bottom for Bitcoin. Uh, we've hit 90% of normal cycle down draws. And then on top of that, I believe we have a, a shift change in, in macro coming. Also, at some point, it's going to decouple from macro. So assuming the fundamentals for Bitcoin remain healthy, assuming we don't have people just abandoning network, <clears throat> but you know, long-term holds continue to grow, most metrics of, of undervaluation continue to, to remain strong. At some point, every incremental drop in, in macro or equities isn't going to have the same magnitude of impact on Bitcoin. So there is a point where, you know, and Bitcoin, if, it, if, if everything kind of kept falling, its market size becomes smaller and smaller. And it just, there's a point where it just breaks apart. And I think in that, you know, call it decoupling or just at least lessened correlations it will behave differently as it has always in the past. Yeah, I agree. So it, it, at some point it's going to, going to decouple the perception of reality is going to catch up. And I think we're seeing that, you know, the dollar, the dollar, the Dixie, the dollar index being so strong, it's just wiping out currencies all around the mm -hmm. world. And those currencies are failing and people are jumping ship, trying to put their value into anything other than those local currencies. And a lot of them are moving to Bitcoin because of the permissionless borderless aspect of it. And so maybe it's controlled by the U S entities, but the rest of the world's kind of waking up and moving to it. And so eventually that, that tide will shift, but, um, yeah, well, good, uh, good, good content. I appreciate uh, the time going through that. I think we'll wrap it up right there. I want to make sure um, in the notes down below for everyone listening, we'll link uh, your your Twitter account. Um, I have that um, that Medium article article you put together about those ribbons. We'll link to that as well. Um, anything else that you want to shout out? No, that's uh, been my my pleasure, Mark. Always good to chat markets with you. Um, yeah, you can obviously check out. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. Otherwise, I'll, you can get, get in touch via my website, caprioli.com. But yeah, been my pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for the time today. All right. Thanks. Uh, check that out in the links down below. And thanks for listening. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.